All right, so, um, hey, I just got back last night from being on vacation, but I watched um, Isaiah's message last week. He did a great job on, um, yes, you can give Isaiah a clap, <clears throat> on um, Revelation chapter 4. I'm doing Revelation chapter 5. They go together very much. They're very similar. If you watched, or if you were here or watched Isaiah's message, you saw that he had a Dodger baseball illustration of when the Dodgers finally won the World Series. There was a video that he had of him going crazy and all that. Well, I have a Dodger baseball illustration today, too. I know you must get tired of sports analogies from us, don't you? But here we go. So in 2018, the Dodgers were in the World Series again. They were playing the Boston Red Sox. Boston won the first two games. No, no, no. <laughs> That's, that's bad. Boston won the first two games, which is bad um, for Dodger fans. Uh, game three was here at Dodger Stadium, and uh, Dave Mooney, who I saw, Dave Mooney and I went. I have a picture of us at that game. There we are at the game, game three of uh, World Series, and uh, uh, Dodgers scored first. Jock Peterson hit a home run. We're up one nothing. Then some guy from Red Sox hit a home run. It was one-to-one. And it went that way all the and through nine innings. It's tied, one-to-one. One. Then in the, uh, in the tenth inning, let me see here. I got my notes here, remember. In the uh, tenth inning, uh, the Boston gets a man on third base with just one out. There's a fly ball to center field. And Cody Bellinger comes up, catches it, and throws him out at home. No score. Are we okay? That's good. That's good. Then the Red Sox score a run, though, in, like, the thirteenth inning. Then uh, Yasiel Puig... Puig uh, beats out a runner, a little ground ball up the middle, and Dodgers score runs. So it's two to two in like the 13th inning. Then the 14th inning, no score. 15th inning, no score. 16th inning, no score. 17th inning, no score. This is like the longest, seriously, the longest World Series game of all time. All 50,000 of us are there. Now, a few people left. Dave and I did not leave. And what this was like is you would just, you were standing the whole time the Dodgers were up. If there was anything intense, you're watching, you're cheering, you're screaming, you sit down in between innings, you stand up again, you're watching, you're scoring. Then finally, in the 18th inning, Max Muncie hits a home run and the place goes crazy. If there was ever a worship service, it was at Dodger Stadium <laughs> on that night. It was unbelievable. <clears throat> it was it was totally, everyone is just high-fiving people. You're giving people, you don't even know, hugs. You're dancing in the aisles. It was amazing. The Dodgers won game three. Now, unfortunately, the Red Sox did win games four and five to win the World Series. But we were at the game the Dodgers won. Now, the, perp the, the illustration here is, and the question to ask ourselves is, why is it so easy to worship at Dodger Stadium when at times when we gather in a church, it's hard to get our hearts to that place? That's a really interesting question, and as we go through Revelation chapter 5 here today, we're gonna, that's a question that we'll, we will get to the end and continue to ask ourselves a bit. Now, there's a dramatic change in the book of Revelation between chapters 1 and 3 and 4 and 5. 1 and 3, it says that Jesus actually goes to the island of Patmos and meets John and speaks to him and tells him, here's what you should write down. Write these things down, and people that read it and keep it will be blessed. Then in chapter 4, uh, John is actually lifted in the spirit and a door is open for him to get a picture of what is happening in heaven. So it changes from Jesus on that island of Patmos with John to this picture of what is going on in heaven and the intricacies of what is happening in heaven. And that's what chapters 4 and 5 are all about. 
And in the center, in chapter four, we saw last week, is God on the throne in all of his glory. If you remember last week, that's where it was. He's surrounded by 24 elders and four living creatures, and they are just worshiping night and day. Night and day, they're worshiping God who sits on the throne. And then um, you have to also remember the setting for this, right? Is um, that while John is writing this down and while this is being put down as what he's seeing and experiencing, that the Roman emperor at that time believed that he was actually a god, that he was the one that was the only one people should worship. And so this picture of worshiping something else or someone else goes totally against what the Roman emperor would say. And it would cause great, people could be arrested for worshiping someone else. They would be put to death for worshiping someone else. And that is the underlying historical context of what Revelation was written in. So here we go. We're going to move on to Revelation chapter 5 verse 1. Here's what John writes. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside it. So God has a scroll. It's like a, a manuscript. And it says it's written on both sides of the paper. And what that means is that this scroll is complete. There's nothing that can be added to it. There's nothing else someone can write onto it. It is a complete scroll. And it has seven seals on it. These are either wax or clay that have been imprinted by the one who sent them. And seven of them are holding this scroll closed. Okay. And the scroll, I'm sorry. And then the scroll is contains, what it contains is the unfolding of God's plans for judgment and for salvation. Plans which have been in place since the beginning of creation. Plans that have now started to be put in motion with the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that is what is on this scroll, is, is that everything that God has planned for judgment, everything he has planned for salvation, it is what he has coming for us. And then, um, and then I loved it. It says a, the angel spoke in a loud voice. And if you go through uh, the book of Revelation, there's a lot of silence in it. There's a lot of loud voices. Last week, Jonathan, you played a trumpet in the middle of our service that I talked about. But there's trumpets playing, there's loud voices, and an angel speaks in this loud voice. It says that there's no one in heaven or on earth who's able to open the seals. And John starts to weep. Because what that means is that, that God's unfolding plan will not be known. And then in verse 5, it says this. Then one of the elders said to John, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So these two phrases that are used here, this, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, are, are come from the Old Testament. And they are Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. The first one, lion of Judah, comes from Genesis 49. It's when Jacob is blessing his sons right at the end of his life. And he, he gets to Judah and he says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. 
You are a lion's cub, Judah. You will return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler staff from between his feet, until he who, to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. So, so he says to his son, you are the top tribe. You are the, the one who will rule. And out of you, Judah, will come the ruler who will rule over everything. And we know that Jesus comes from the line of, of, of Judah. And then in Isaiah chapter 11, it says this. It says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And these two pictures of the Lion of Judah and the Root of David point to a Messiah, and it is a conquering Messiah. It is a Messiah that overcomes everything. It is a Messiah that puts others down and is the strength and the power of Messiah. And that is what they're saying, that this is the one who will be able to open the scroll and to get the seals away. But then verse 6, it says this. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne." So John hears that the one who will be able to open the seal, these seals is the lion of Judah, the root of, of David. And, and, and yet then he turns around and he sees a lamb that looks as if he has been slain. And he has seven horns and seven eyes. Have you ever been surprised um, by what you see? You know, it's not what you expected um, I, this is probably not a great example because I've never watched this show, but there's some reality show where they date without seeing each other, right? They just talk. And then all of a sudden, the big reveal is they look and they're like, oh, I wasn't expecting you to look this way, you know, sort of thing, sort, <laughs> some, sort of thing. That's the, whole, that's the whole point of the show, I think, right? But imagine John has just heard that the one who will be able to open the seals is the Lion of Judah, the root of David, and he turns and he sees a lamb that looks as if he has just been slain. It's not what he's expecting. And yet this is the first of over 25 times in the book of Revelation that the lamb will be mentioned. And, and if an artist tried to draw this lamb that's talked to her about with seven horns and seven eyes, it would be kind of grotesque. But, but what it means is that the the horns are uh, images that are used for strength, for power. And the eyes are to, about wisdom and God's spirit. So it's a metaphor for this lamb that has been slain, that yes, this lamb, even though it may not look like much, is powerful. This lamb is wise. This lamb is the spirit. And, and we remember this, right, that when John the Baptist for the first time saw Jesus walk by, he said this to him, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This imagery of a lamb goes way back into the Old Testament, right? We know this from the book of Exodus. 
as the plagues were being put on the nation of Egypt, God told his people, the Hebrews, that they were to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood and put it on their doorposts and that the angel of death would pass over them as they killed the Egyptians around them. And that's the beginning of Passover. And Israel marked and celebrated Passover, and Jesus now has become this sacrificial lamb that John looked at and said, here he is. He's the one. And now, this lamb, Jesus Christ, is in the throne in heaven, holding on to the scroll. And it continues this way. It says this, uh, and when he the lamb, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and a priest to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And so all the creatures fall down before this lamb that was, looks as if it's been slain. And the harp is an image of worship. And so they begin to worship this lamb. And what a beautiful statement and beautiful picture that, the, that they hold on to these golden bowls that hold the prayers of God's people. Have you ever wondered if your prayers matter? Have you ever wondered if God is really hearing those prayers? But what a beautiful picture that those prayers are in the bowls that are held by those that are before the throne. And they all fall down before this lamb and begin to worship him. Because you see, the lamb has overcome through sacrifice. That's how the lamb has overcome. It's not the most powerful image. It's not the one we were imagining or expecting. But actually, Jesus, as he was on the cross, was overcoming all the sin and evil of this world. The lamb has overcome through sacrifice. Peter, in his first letter, as he wrote in chapter 1, verse 18, he talks about this a little bit. He says this, he says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. Wasn't because of silver and gold that you've been purchased. It's by the blood of the lamb that we've been purchased that we've expect, experienced forgiveness and grace. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, 
In Revelation, it says that people from, and I love these way it says, he says, for you have purchased persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. When you have those kind of four things that are very similar, the thinking is that it kind of means, has something to do with kind of the north, the south, the east, and the west, that, that Jesus has purchased people from all over the world. It's not just one group, but it's everybody that's been purchased by Jesus' blood and brought in to be a part of God's kingdom. And then he says that we are given a purpose. You've made them to be a kingdom, and we're called to be priests who serve our God. That each one of us who, again, put our faith in Christ, who are following after him, are a, we are priests. And what that means is that you are called to be one who worships God and helps others to worship God and to serve him. And that that is who you are called. And then he says, again, our purpose is, and this is remarkable, he says that we will reign on earth. Sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, when we think of that image here, what does it mean to be one that reigns? My first image is that I'm sitting on a throne and I'm telling people what to do. But the truth is this. That ever since the creation of the world, when you go back to Genesis with Adam and Eve, that they were called to reign on earth. They were called to steward this earth. We are all called to reign wherever we are. You are called to reign in your families. You are called to reign in your homes, in your neighborhoods, where your workplace, where your school you might go to, wherever it is, you are called to reign. But it is a very different reigning than we might imagine because the one that we look to as our example is the lamb that has been slain. That we reign not so much as a lion, but we reign as a lamb who has been slain. That I reign as a servant. I reign as one who's willing to sacrifice for others. That that is what Jesus is calling us to do and be. And it only happens when we look at the lamb that has been slain. And throughout the rest of Revelation, it's pretty wild. It's not the lion that takes center stage. It's the lamb. The one that gave his life. The one who sacrificed for all of us. And then Revelation 5 ends this way. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Do you see that picture? And I did the math. 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. And it's not as if John's trying to count how many angels were there, but the idea is it is just a multitude of angels now that have joined in. And that there are so many people around the throne. 
and at the center of the throne is a lamb that has been slain. I love this picture that John has given of what it will be like. And in many ways, this, what we read here in Revelation 5, is a fulfillment of one of my favorite sections of Scripture in Philippians 2. Paul writes this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, so the Apostle Paul writes this to a group of people in, in Philippi and says this is where it's all headed and John is taken up into heaven by his spirit and given this picture of a multitude of angels and people from every nation around worshiping this one at the center of the throne, this lamb that has been slain. And the vision that God sees and the words that he writes down have to must draw our hearts to a place where we worship Jesus with full abandonment. That there's nothing holding us back. There's nothing in the way. We just focus on this lamb that has been slain that is at the center. He is the one who is worthy. He is the one that we offer our praise and our worship. We give him the honor and the glory. So I'll invite the worship team to come back up right now. Here's three reasons why we worship Jesus. We worship Jesus because of who he is. He is the lamb of the world who sacrificed himself for us. He is the one who in his own humility laid himself down for us. We worship Jesus because of who he is. Secondly, we worship Jesus because of where he is. He is at the center of the throne. He is right there in the center of the throne in heaven. A really good and hard question to ask yourself is this. What is at the center of my life? What is at the center of my life? Oftentimes we try to put ourselves in the center Sometimes we put our job at a center. Sometimes we put money at the center, whatever it is. But we worship Jesus because of where he is. And he ultimately is at the center on the throne in heaven. That's why we worship him. And then finally, we worship Jesus because of the purpose that he has given us to reign. You see, our natural tendency whenever we might be called to reign or to be in charge of something or whatever, is to, is to do it for our own good. And yet we have to worship Jesus so that we can reign well. We have to worship the one who sacrificed himself for us, the one that, that died for our sins. That puts us in the right place to actually reign well. That's why we worship Jesus. 
because of who he is, because of where he is, and because of what he's called us to do. Let me pray for us. So Lord, it's our desire that we would truly worship you with abandonment. That, that all the distractions that might get in the way right now would be taken away. That we would only focus on the lamb that has been slain, the one who laid his life down for us, the one who is, is, deserves our worship, the one who loves us deeply. Draw us, Lord, to a place where we can fully, fully worship the lamb that has been slain. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.